Praise God. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are in 2 Kings, the 13th chapter, and we are at verse 20. Elisha died and was buried. So now we've come to the end. All this detail. Uh, it was going through, you know, one king, one king, one did it real fast. And then all of a sudden it hits Elijah and Elisha. And we really take a close look at the lives of these two incredible prophets. Uh, and then it's going to kind of take off again with lots of kings and slow down again when we get to Hezekiah, I think is whatever his name is. But uh, so anyway, Elisha dies, this incredible prophet. And then it tells just kind of this neat little story about Elisha. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. And uh, once while some Israelites were burying a guy, suddenly they see a band of raiders coming. So they freak. Ah! And they quickly want to go run. So they took the man's body and they just threw it into Elisha's tomb as they're taking off trying to hide from these raiders. Well, when the body touched Elisha's bones, the man Comes back to life and stands up on his feet. Whoa. Holy stinking cow. That, that is pretty cool. Now, the question is, can the power of God reside in objects and things? Uh, apparently, uh, it can. And uh, we saw this a little bit in the... Uh, Early on with Moses, they'd get in the glory of God. He'd get before God and then he'd come out and his face would shine so brightly they couldn't even look at him because the glory of God was just physically just bouncing off of him. It's it it almost like some form of spiritual radiation, if you will. And uh, they, In fact, they had to make him wear a veil over his face so that they could talk to him because his face was like this gigantic light bulb, which had to be pretty, pretty weird back then. Um, we see other examples of uh, this sort of thing. Let's jump over to the uh, book of Acts, uh, the fifth chapter. Book of Acts, fifth chapter, verse 12. Wait for our Bible in the sky to pop up there. There it is. It says, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else, the unbelievers, dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The church was growing exponentially. Thousands of people were coming to Christ and experiencing the resurrection power of the gospel. As a result, people brought sick people into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The power of God was so powerful and prevalent in the life of the apostles, particularly Peter in this particular case, that all they had to do was touch people and they would be healed. And it went beyond that. It got to the point that if so much of his shadow would fall, on someone who was sick, boom, they would get healed. Now that's pretty cool, you know, to have that much power of God in you that your shadow uh, would bring about healing in someone's life. Uh, look at Acts, the 19th chapter. Acts, 
uh, verse 11. This is talking about Paul the Apostle. 1911. Sorry, I didn't warn them. I was going to jump this around like this. There we go. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So now this is a whole nother example where the power of God was so saturating in Paul as he was ministering. All he had to do was touch claws, aprons or whatever and then they would take these aprons to people to uh, have them get healed and they would get healed and delivered uh, from demons. So um, apparently, now the question I have as I was thinking about this was, you know, how long does that last? You know, apparently there is this, just like nuclear radiation or that sort of thing, apparently there is this presence of God radiation that actually exists to the point, I think, uh, I've seen people like that. I've experienced this where if you've ever been in a wonderful service and the power of God and you're the presence of God and you walk out and you're just buzzing and people is actually will say things to you like, wow, where have you been? I mean, they can see something about you. I believe it's, it's like it's reflecting and radiating the presence of God that sometimes unbelievers won't even know what it is. Well, this is to the point that shadows, boom, miracles, all they got to do is sit there and lay hands on, on cloths and, uh, and uh, people would get healed later from the cloth. Now, this is uh, where you get um, something that's been highly abused in previous decades here throughout the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, and then not so much after that because it got pretty bad. But uh, where a lot of big evangelists would um, pray for these claws, and they'd literally have prayer claws that they would pray, and then you'd hear evangelists get on the radio or TV and say, "If you just send in your offering this week, praise God." We're going to send brother so-and-so's anointed cloth. He laid his hands on this cloth. And he's just going to, if you send in your money right now, we'll send you this cloth. So it became abused in the sense that so many people were going for these cloths. These guys were using it as a way to raise more money to, uh, if you really wanted to get healed, send me 20 bucks. I'll send you this cloth that touched, what's his name, you know, hands or whatever. And, uh, uh, and it really got seriously out of control. You don't hear a whole lot about it anymore. Uh, there's some places that still do this. Uh, there's places who uh, will still do this in meetings, have some preacher lay their hands on claws and then take it to the healing, but they're not using it to, to get money. They're doing it more, more biblically. But that clearly uh, was the case of um, you know, the power of God getting into things. Now, the question again is how long does that last? I don't know. I don't think it lasts forever. Or if, if that were the case... Uh, People would still be selling these claws today to hospitals <laughs> for cures of cancer because Peter touched it back in, you know, 2,000 years ago and it's still, apparently there was a diminishing effect of this. It had to be. Otherwise, they'd still be hanging on to these things. Now, this is part of, how do, how do I want to address this without, without ticking off some people? Um, but uh, th- there are a lot of churches you know, established churches like the Catholic Church. We're not in a Catholic bashing around here, but it's Catholic Church or uh, Greek Orthodox churches or a lot of the, some of these very old line denominations who are very much into what they call relics. 
okay, holy things that either Jesus touched or some saint had touched or somebody, you know, whatever. And um, if you go into, for example, like a Russian Orthodox church, um, these churches are just filled with uh, icons and relics and things like that that the faithful would come and pray and they stand before these holy things because apparently some holy person had prayed for or laid hands on it and um, they obviously get that concept from some of these things that they saw in the Bible for example the uh, dead man falling on top of Elisha's bones popped to life again Obviously, that must not have continued to happen or everybody would have just taken dead people over to Elisha's bones and threw them on top of there and watched them pop back to life. You know, what happened to him? He dropped dead. I'll just drag him over to Elisha's bones. He'll be fine. You know, uh, that didn't keep happening. As far as we know, it only happened the one time. It must have happened, I would assume, shortly after he had died. You know, that's because the power of God was so powerfully in this guy. Um, but this idea from the bones and from the handkerchiefs and the shadows and all these different things where they get this idea of something becomes innately holy in and of itself, uh, some holy person's bones or whatever, and it's it's really an exaggeration and something that's been taken, uh, I believe, completely out of context and exaggerated greatly. Uh, many of these churches to this day can't even have an altar. We don't have altars like that because we don't believe in this type of thinking. It's extra biblical things, although we have a few examples of it. The idea that, you know, because some holy person touched something a long time ago, we stick it in an altar. That's what makes it an altar is very bizarre thinking as far as I'm concerned. Certainly from a biblical point of view, you never saw the New Testament people doing that. You did say some examples of these things. But they didn't go and make a big deal out of it. In fact, when they did make a big deal out of it, it actually um, became a bad thing. Um, Look at uh, the the Gospel of John. John, the third chapter, verse 14. I've got all kinds of detours I'm taking tonight uh, as they jump around and find these verses. John, the third chapter... Verse 14, Jesus is talking. This is just before he gives that famous verse, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. This is just before that. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is the story, if you'll remember, uh, that we saw about Moses. They were out in the wilderness and these guys were complaining and whining and bellyaching nonstop, irritating God to no end. And at times God would send punishment to these people because they were so off. They were so over the line. I mean, it's just holy stinking cow. Anyway, this one time God had had enough and he sent snakes into the, into the camp. And snakes were biting everybody and they're poisoning the snakes. A lot of guys are dying from the snakes. They're all freaking out. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Moses prays. God says, okay, make a bronze snake and go put it up on a stick. And if you look on the snake on a stick, you'll be healed. Which is very bizarre. Why would you get healed if you've been bitten by a poison snake by looking at a snake on a stick? But that's what they did. And, they, and the people who wouldn't look at the snake on a stick, ah, stupid, I'm not going to look at some stupid snake on a stick, they would die. But everybody else that would look on the snake, Hoshibama, miraculously, they were healed. And Jesus used this analogy talking about just like Moses lifted up the serpent, this bronze snake in the wilderness, 
that whoever looked at it would be healed. So I must be lifted up. Talking about his death on the cross. That by Jesus Christ dying on the cross, looking up to that and putting our faith and trust in him, that we would be healed of our sin. You say, how is that possible? I don't know. I don't understand it anymore than looking at a snake on a stick would heal you of a snake bite. But we do know the analogy and the realities as we look up to Christ and put our faith and trust in Christ. He forgives us of our sins. He heals us. It's this glorious thing that we call salvation. Okay, so this is like a major example in the Old Testament that Jesus referred to. This event where they had the bronze snake, which I call snake on a stick. Now, take a look now at 2 Kings, the 18th chapter. Now, we're jumping ahead here a little bit. But we'll, we'll come back to it in a second. I just want to put it all in context here. Second Kings, the 18th chapter. This is talking about Hezekiah, which is, we'll catch up to again real quick here. I guess I gotta be a little patient, but we wouldn't want that. Um, Hezekiah, he's, he's this really good king. And it says in his credit, what he had done is he removed, oops, I'm sorry, Second Kings 18, 4. Right after 2 Kings 18.3. There we go. Okay. It says, He removed the high places, these places where they go and worship idols, and he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles, all these things that were marks of this satanic worship that was prevalent throughout the land. And one of the things that Hezekiah had done uh, to honor God is he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. So up to this one, now this has been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had held on to the snake. Why? For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. These morons, these ignoramuses. But when they looked up to the snake and they got healed and they know they weren't supposed to worship anything but God, these guys took the snake on a stick. And they held on it all these hundreds of years. And they're worshiping this stupid snake. Which again is this idea of holding on to something that's been touched by someone holy. This idea of relics which is just absurd people. We don't worship things. I don't care who touched it. We worship God. God is a righteous holy God. We don't worship saints. We don't worship Angels, we don't worship cousins and all the other kinds of things of holy people. We worship God. And why for the life of me, people will ignore worshiping God, but take the time to hang on to a snake for hundreds of years and worship the stupid snake. I do not understand. But Hezekiah, to his credit, said enough of this nonsense. And he busted up the stupid snake. And that was the end of it. So a little example of telling people to intentionally hold on to these kinds of things that just gets people in trouble. Okay, now back to the rest of the story. Back to chapter 13, now verse 22. Haziel, king of Aram. This is the guy who constantly tortured Israel. He's the one that Elisha had told him he would become king and he wept when he saw him because he knew how terrible things he would bring. Uh, but God used him to punish 
Israel. So Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. These guys need other names. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Well, finally, Haziel, this guy who created all this grief, king of Aram, died. But then his lousy son, Ben-Hadad, succeeded him as king. Then Joash, son of Jehoaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Haziel, the towns that had been taken in battle from his father, Jehoahaz. And then three times Joash defeated him, so he recovered the Israelites' time. Three times, remember? Elisha said to him, take the arrows and hit the ground. And he hit the ground three times. And Elisha was mad at him that he didn't hit it more. Uh, but he said, okay, God will give you three victories. And these were the three victories. Okay, now we're done with the detail of all of this stuff around Elijah and Elisha. And now we go into more records of these kings. Chapter 14. Uh, we talk about a king. Uh, then Jer- Jeroboam the second comes along. Chapter 15. We got another king. Zechariah, king of Israel. Shalom, king of Israel. Manhanahem, king of Israel. Pekiah, king of Israel. One king after another after another. You can read it all on your own time. Because it's excruciatingly boring to me. And uh, you can read it on your own. Um, I usually stop and hit anything that I think is of real consequence uh, to us today. But this is just, they're just keeping record. This king to that king to that king to this king. And uh, it just really has nothing to do with what we're trying to say. Uh, We get to chapter 16. Ahaz is a king of Judah, and uh, in verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2, verse 2, there we go, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Now, unlike David, his father, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And all of these kings were like this. They were constantly, um, uh, when when the uh, nation of Israel uh, and and Judah, when they split um, the uh, sins of, of the king of Israel at that time, he established and they just kept repeating them over and over and over and over and over again. Um, And... Uh, at verse 3, the reason I wanted to point this out, I wanted to see, when they're talking about evil, it wasn't like they had bad tempers and they just got irritable bowel syndrome or something. I mean, these people were mean, wicked kings who encouraged people to do wicked, horrible things. And we get some detail here in verse 3. This king, Ahaz, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his own son in the fire. These people were into... Uh, um, Human sacrifice. This guy sacrificed even his own son. Um, uh, uh, the uh, sexual uh, things that they did. I mean, it was it was perverse and violent at an incredible 
level. It was essentially Satan worship is what it is. The worship of Baal. That's why when you get to the New Testament, when they would refer to Satan, they would refer to him as Baalzebub. Okay, it was all tied to this extremely violent, depraved thing. These guys were really, really bad news. So this guy had sacrificed his own son. Uh, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense in the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. These uh, uh, idols to this Satan worship, all part of this thing, which again was very violent, very sexual, very perverted, uh, just spread throughout them like a plague. And it's like they just wouldn't shake it. I was going to say couldn't shake it, but they could have, but they didn't. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's jump to chapter 17. Again, you can check this all out on your own if you want. Just, this king did that, and this king did that, and this king did this, and this king was this old, and he did this, and this other king did that. All right. So then we finally get to Hosea, and the reason we're picking this up, because this is now the last king of Israel. All right. So chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria. And he reigned for nine years. And he did, as virtually all of them had done, evil in the eyes of the Lord. But not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So he wasn't quite as evil, but uh, or more evil. I don't know, it depends on your perspective. I get the sense it means not as evil. Anyway, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Salamanser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria. I mean, just one thing or another, just tick these different kings off. And therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria... The king of Syria captured Samaria and deported all of the Israelites to Assyria. And he settled them in Halan and Gazan on the Haber River and in the town, towns of the Mede. So this was it. God had finally had enough with these people. Verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, this has been hundreds and hundreds of years. It certainly speaks to the patience of Almighty God. God is extraordinarily patient. Uh, what's the good news in this is for some of you who have, you know, you've committed the same sin five times and you think God hates you. Now, nah, it takes a lot to tick off God, okay? Now, he doesn't want you committing the same sins because we see at some point God will, he had enough of this. So on the one hand, you don't want to push God and just totally disregard God's call for holiness and righteousness in your life. But the good news is God is extraordinarily patient. I would have killed them all a long time ago. But these guys, God would forgive them and deliver them and they'd rebel against God and God would forgive them and deliver them and rebel against this cycle over and over and over and over. And finally, God had had enough. This was the people that he had pulled out of Egypt from under the power of the Pharaoh. 
They worshipped other gods. Verse 8, and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. He had warned them, listen, when you go in there, kill them all, clear this place out. These were people extraordinarily wicked. He used Israel to bring judgment on them and told them, whatever you do, do not be like these people. But they did precisely that. So they followed the principles, uh, practices of all the nations that were driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. These were the places where they'd go and they'd get involved in this Baal worship and uh, uh, idols and human sacrifice and oh God knows what else. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey, that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. And they were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust the Lord their God. I mean, not only God would would bring judgment on them and and punishment, they'd call out to God and forgive them and God would deliver them and then they'd do it again and God would send prophets and, you know, incredible men like Elisha and Elijah and, you know, we're going to see here in a bit uh, Isaiah and all these incredible prophets who came and God used them and spoke to them and told them, you have to... Just stop. Listen to me. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. They implored them. They cried out. They did some of the strangest and most bizarre things, these prophets, to get the attention of the people. As God cried out desperately, you have to stop this. But they would not listen. They would not listen and they were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them although the Lord had ordered them do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. By the way, if there is one thing that It seems like people of faith have always been tempted to do. It's to imitate the pagans around them. To this day, people of faith are quick to continue to imitate the lives of the pagans of which we live around. Now look, we need to love these people. We need to care for them. We need to live lives of compassion and hopefully lives of example and to share with them the good news so they can be delivered from their sins and from the destructive things that people without faith are into. But sadly, so much of the church thinks like the pagan culture in which we live today. As I travel around the world, it is evident to me 
over and over and over again. Christianity is suffering terribly because we do not think biblically. We think like the pagan culture in which we live. We take the concepts and ideas of the pagan cultures in which we live and then we try to put a Christian face on it and Christian acceptance to it and we start ignoring God's uh, standards, God's rules, God's laws for holy living and, uh, and we corrupt ourselves. This pattern, though we're talking specifically of the nation of Israel, is not a pattern that has ceased to exist. It is a pattern that continues to repeat itself uh, ever since Jesus came and people went out passionately and started preaching the gospel everywhere is uh, they would become complacent. Uh, we read last week where Jesus warned the uh, churches in the book of Revelation, dudes, wake up. You've lost your first love. You've lost your passion. See, the danger of fire, the tendency of fire is to go out. It burns up and it stops. We have to intentionally continue to feed the fire of God in ourselves so that we can stay on fire for God and be passionate for the things of God. These things just don't happen on their own. Um, If there is one area that we have in the Christian world been corrupted by, it is sexual sin. It is out of control. It is insane. The pagan world in which we live has lost its mind. They live like animals, acting as though they cannot stop, as a bunch of dogs in heat, and everyone accepts it. We spend billions of dollars, billions of dollars of wealth and of riches and of treasure trying to cure diseases and warn people of diseases that would not exist if people would simply keep their pants on. But it seems they cannot do it and they will not do it. And the very idea that you don't have to do it, people look at you like you're crazy and you're insane. And we have Christians who now accept this without hesitation. The number of emails, those of you who listen to my daily radio program here over and over again, statements like, we're Christians, my, my boyfriend, we're Christians, but we have sex, but we still love God. As a, Hello? Are you insane? What's standing? All you got to do is take one of the other commandments and fill in the blank and you can see how absurd their statement is. That's like saying, uh, my boyfriend and I are Christians, uh, but we kill people. Uh, but it's okay, we don't kill that many people. You know, we only kill people that irritate us and take our parking spots, you know, and we bury them in places that don't smell too bad, you know, and God doesn't really matter because we're still Christians. You know, everybody kills people, you know. Well, goodness, is absurd. Take another one. We're Christians, we really love God. Well, we, we steal a lot. You know, we break into people's homes and stuff and take stuff. That we, they, we shouldn't, you know, all their, all their treasures and life. But it's okay, they have insurance. And we, well, we love God, we're Christians. Oh, we're Christians, we just lie all the time. We have great fun lying to people and, and going in and telling all kinds of stories and getting them in all kinds of trouble. But we really love God. Any of those, you roll your eyes, this is absurd and absurd and absurd. But when it comes to sex, we don't even question it anymore. Now, we, we, you know, we're having sex, but we're still Christians and we really love God. It is. Oh, my God. The Christian, the Christian church, we say it without hesitation. There's not even a sense of shame. 
Why? Because we think like the pagans. Just like they imitated the nations around them, so the Christian church is imitating the pagans in which we live and we justify our sins and we justify our behavior. It doesn't matter what God's word says. And then we wonder why we're not blessed. It's going to be much worse than that. You invite God's judgment into your life at some point if you continue to ignore God's standards. Just as it happened to them. Verse 16, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves. These idiots worshiping cows for crying out loud. And an Asherah pole and they bowed down to all the starry hosts. In other words, they worshiped the stars and they were into the stars, what the stars as and astrology and stuff like that. See, we as Christians aren't supposed to do that kind of stuff. Because why? Because we don't look at stars. We don't worship poles. We don't worship cows. We're supposed to be focused on God. But these people worship the starry hosts and they worship Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. There's a sermon you could preach right there. You know, these people did it literally. I think we do it figuratively, sacrificing our sons and daughters. Letting the ways of the world destroy them because we're more interested in being their friends instead of their parents. Somebody say amen. Oh, my kid might get upset. (sighs) Trust me, you stand between hell and your kid, there's going to be conflict. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, there's conflict, there's conflict. I have a teenager and there's conflict in our home. And? (laughs) And? Of course there's conflict in your home. Don't let these kids guilt you out about it either. You don't trust me. So tell our kids, you're a teenager. Who tried? Nobody trusts you. Shut up. What are you talking about? <laughs> They're te- who trusts you? You don't trust me. Right. Shut up. Next subject. <laughs> you don't trust me. Could just take their head, stick them in the toilet, and give them a swirly. <laughs> These people sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. They practice divination, sorcery, Ouija boards, all the dark, dark arts, stars. All that stuff Christians are supposed to avoid like the plague. They sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Now you remember, Israel had been split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel which consisted of uh, ten tribes to the north. Then we had Judah. Uh, and then, who was the little tiny one with them? Benjamin, yeah. Nobody ever thinks about it. Only Judah was left. Well, no, there was Benjamin, but he's already ever mentioned uh, those two. Um, so this is all that's left now. Even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God, and they followed the practices that Israel had introduced. Eventually, judgment's going to fall on Israel, and they're all going to be swept into captivity. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam was the first king when they split. He is the horrid king that 
enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. And they constantly kept repeating the sins of Jeroboam. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence. As he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. The good news is, you know, God kept warning them, kept warning them, kept warning them. And they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen. By the way, if there's one thing I have learned as a minister of the gospel is people only listen, it seems, to what they want to hear. It's amazing. <sighs> so the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Syria. And there they and they are, at the time of this writing, which is a long time ago, still there. And that's what happened to, to Israel. And we will... We, my timer's not on. It hasn't been on. Are we 30 minutes into this? We're good? Yes? Long? Time to stop? Time to stop. All right, so we'll end it right there and pick it up from there uh, next week.